This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. Today is my guest on Rumble. I have with me Brianna Joy Gray. Uh, she's been with us before. And by the way, Brianna, uh, I believe you are the first return repeat guest on Rumble. So I know there's a prize for this. I'm not quite sure <laughs> what it is. Uh, it will be messengered to you uh, as soon as possible. But thank you for coming back on. We so enjoyed uh, the discussion that we had with you uh, a couple of months ago. Brianna, for those of you who don't know, uh, was the National Press Secretary for Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. And she was the host of Hear the Burn, as in, <laughs> I applied for the job to host Fear the Burn, but I think they thought that was a little too, too aggressive. Uh, Brianna is a writer. Uh, actually, she was a lawyer, if I'm correct. That is correct. And then decided the hell with that. And, 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 and trust me, I know many, there are attorneys listening to this right now saying, how can I be like that? <laughs> I want out. I want out. No more of this. <laughs> That's exactly what I used to think. I, I waited with, I listened with bated breath to any tale of uh, a former attorney I ever wanted to tell. So I'm happy to provide that kind of inspiration and play it forward. So, uh, but actually now, no longer a lawyer. Uh, Brianna is a writer and contributing editor at Current Affairs, one of the best magazines in the country. And she has just published her new piece in Current Affairs. It's called In Defense of Litmus Test. And uh, I encourage you uh, to go online uh, or to get a subscription and read uh, not only Current Affairs, but this incredible piece that uh, Brianna just wrote. And that's why I wanted to have you. I wanted to have you come on the episode today because, well, let's just lay it out there. I'm depressed. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I'm serious. I really, and, and I'm not, I don't get depressed. And it was really just a couple of nights ago on the first, just before the first night of the convention started, I was on Ari Melbourne and MSNBC mm -hmm. and people were writing in afterwards going, Michael Moore looks so happy all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Michael Moore looked optimistic. There was a twinkle in his eye. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's, that's probably correct because I actually always am hoping, hoping against hope that um, things will turn around. Things will be better. But that night, I have to say, in addition to the, all the awful stuff, like having Republicans uh, there speaking, yeah. when Bernie came on, instead of being inspired or happy to see him or whatever, I sunk. I, I just instantly sunk into a funk. And as he was, you know, he was standing there in front of like four or five cords of firewood. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like wholesome, <laughs> very wholesome. I like. Anyways, it's a Vermont thing, I guess. I don't know. But as he finished, this thought came into my head and I couldn't get it out of my head. And the thought was, I've just seen Bernie Sanders on primetime network television for the last time. This will not happen again. It's not that he's going away. It's not that he's not going to finish out a Senate term. It's not that he's not going to be on MSNBC or CNN or whatever. But what I just saw him being able to be on primetime network television, that's never going to happen again. They're, they do not want his voice. They don't want our voice. And, you know, to, to them, we are essentially the enemy because we stand for things that are very much opposed to what they believe in. And it, it, it felt, I felt there he goes. It's just, it's like, you know, um, George Washington's farewell address. Yeah. It's like uh, uh, um, the, the last, the last of it. 
And, um, and does that mean the last of us? Does that mean the last of the revolution? Does that mean the last of, and of course it doesn't. Yeah. But I'd be dishonest, Brianna, if I didn't say that this week and then the second night of the convention was even worse. Yes, I agree with that. Look, I, I, I heard a lot of lefties say that when they saw Senator Sanders speak, they were reminded of what we could have had and that it was dispiriting for that reason. And, you know, that feeling was compounded by the fact that the two speeches of that first night that were heralded the most were Senator Sanders and um, Michelle Obama's, even from, you know, corners of the media that normally have not <laughs> no, no positive word to say about Senator Sanders or members of the left. And there was this kind of cynical feeling that, okay, well, now that Bernie doesn't present a threat, now that he's obviously not going to be president, now that he's so old, that is extremely unlikely that he would ever run again. They can be honest about what a compelling speaker he is and how much he has to offer. And that just underscores how dishonest they had been throughout the primary process and the primary process in 2016. And that's dispiriting for, for yeah. other reasons, right? Can I say something though before because before anybody tunes out because they're saying, oh, that we're just going to, I'm not going to listen to Mike and Brianna, you know, <laughs> bellyache about how <laughs> Bernie's not the candidate. That's not what this podcast, this episode is about. It's, it's about, it's about things like that day, earlier in the day, Dave uh, Sirota, uh wrote a, a column and, 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 and quoted the sources of, from the healthcare industry who quietly have, even though it's in the platform, the the so-called you know public option uh, to make Obamacare a little bit better, um, that they have no intention. This they have no intention of doing that uh, here in in uh, Biden's uh, first term. And the healthcare lobbyists are, were like ecstatic that they weren't going to have to do uh, the the public option, let alone Medicare for all. And then and then there was the next day. Uh, the it coming out that quietly they had, even though it was in the platform, the platform committee voted on uh, the, you know, getting off fossil fuels and not, you know, divesting from fossil fuels. And it got removed from the final version of the platform. Yeah. Just like dropped without anybody saying anything. I, I believe the reporting was that it was mistakenly included to begin with. To the, begin subtext, with. the subtext being that it was, you know, part of the Bernie people, you know, the team, team Bernie's unity commission additions that people hadn't noticed in time to extract. <laughs> they missed, they missed the edit and accidentally left some of the good stuff in. Yeah. It's, it's, it's and then the, oil, the oil and coal industry. They're all so thrilled that the Democrats and then, and then, and then Elizabeth Warren the other night, um, I think at the end of the second night was on with Colbert and Colbert said to him, let me just ask you, because you know, you've been the one you fought wall street for us. So how do you feel about the fact that here he quoted the times, how thrilled wall street is that Joe Biden is the candidate. How it's how excited they are about the Biden presidency. Um, uh, what's your answer to that? And then she, she pivoted to answering something else and he came back to it. He goes, no, I got to ask you again, you know, are you as excited as wall street is? about the Biden can and she pivoted. She, he asked it a third time mm. and then he finally had to say, I see, I'm not going to get an answer. Wow. I missed that interview. I'm going to have to go back and watch that one. Um, 
Yeah, look, I, it's difficult because I don't ever want to sound um, conspiratorial. There, there's a way that the left, because of the kinds of criticisms we make, um, we're characterized as never being happy with anything, disliking everyone. And because there are so many people on both sides of the aisle that we have critiques of, that is often flipped into, well, you, the only person you like is Bernie and this, it's a cult of personality. But I think what's more accurate to say is that the number of people who are genuinely unbought and politically independent and genuinely fighting uh, to, to advance the interests that the majorities of, of Americans share is just so small. They're, they're, they're just so few that our, our, our positive statements are reserved for a, fair, a fairly narrow tranche of politicians. And, you know, then when one fails, when, when, when we don't win, it feels like a real blow to a movement as opposed to just an individual loss. Um, but that's not to say that we haven't won a great deal, right? You know, there was a time not so long ago, even four years ago, where if I were to say healthcare is a human right, I think an overwhelming majority of Americans would kind of roll their, or, or uh, Democrats even, would roll their eyes and say, right. yeah, right. sure, whatever, hippie. You know, or <laughs> right. you know, if, if I seriously said we need to commit trillions of dollars to meet, um, you know, Green New Deal uh, energy goals uh, in order to keep the climate from <laughs> killing us, uh, people would say, yeah, sure, I guess that's something we should do, but there's no way it's going to happen. And, you know, Bernie's plan was something like $17 trillion and Biden's, I think, $1.7 trillion. So it's obviously an enormous difference in magnitude. But it is true that even the idea of Biden committing that much would have been kind of unthinkable a short time ago. In 2016, we had knocked down, dried out fights over whether or not we should have a $15 minimum wage. And now that is something that's considered part of the Democratic Party platform. So I, it's a delicate ba balance between not wanting to, you know, have people rest on their laurels and and not wanting people to be so um, depressed that they feel like the fight isn't worth it in the first place. And I think we should be very cognizant of the fact that the gains that we have made give us an enormous amount of rhetorical and moral and political leverage that we didn't have before. And it's incumbent on us to use that leverage and use the people that we have left in the fight, including Bernie, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and newbies like Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones um, and Cori Bush to, to push on. Okay. So how do we, how do we push on here? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, listen, I read your piece in uh, yeah. current affairs. I thought it was brilliant and mm -hmm. I expected to, to more of just the same, um, I don't know what to call it, but it's the, it's the, the, the thing you would expect that you would write. <laughs> um, maybe I would write you, you would, you would be, you would be mo more, to the point maybe than I would be. I'm, I'm, I'm still in kind of a Midwestern frame of mind. That I, <laughs> I believe, I believe. Um, but, uh, but this was, this is such an excellent um, dissection of what happened and where we're at. And, and what does it mean to be for Joe Biden? Or what I'm trying to there's a, there's I think a quote somewhere in the Bible that says something. What does it what does it profit someone if they uh, gain the whole world but uh, suffer the loss of their own soul? Mm. What does it profit us, you know, if we gain Joe Biden but suffer the loss of our soul? And in the long game, in the long run, 
aren't we actually doing some serious damage to ourselves? Now, having said that, before people again uh, flip out as they're lis- listening to this, if you're riding a, you know, a, a bicycle or something, please don't run off the road. Or <laughs> but I, I'm if I can speak for you, but you should say it in your own words because I liked it better the way you wrote it. But <laughs> the way I'll just say it for myself is: it's a, yes, of course, Trump has to go. Stop it, everybody! Stop it. Yes, Trump, go, gone, toast, crush him, right? right. Um, <laughs> and yes, you know, Brianna and I are not stupid. We know <laughs> that there's now only one narrow path that's been offered to us to crush him. Okay, okay, we've got that too. But I just, I just worry that if it means that we if we give up the essence of this fight that will never succeed. And I mean, in what, you know, we can cite so many examples in history where um, it wasn't pulling back that won the struggle. It was taking the risk of even crossing a line that you told yourself that you couldn't or shouldn't cross, but you cry, you had to cross it or we were going to go down into defeat. It's, Maybe explain a little bit what of what you you know maybe wrote in this article, especially as how it relates to the what feels like a conundrum or might sound like a conundrum uh, uh, to certain mainstream Democrats thinking that we're caught in something here. Maybe there's some glee that they get from that that the only way to get rid of Trump is to vote for Biden. But but what if we were to look at this in in not just in context but in a more rich, full way? of the the longer struggle that we're in the middle of and that we hope to succeed in uh, in our lifetime. Yeah, so so my article is really a critique of the argument that Democrats should vote blue no matter who. And that isn't to say that I'm arguing yeah, let, that let me Democrats- just repeat that again for people that aren't familiar. There, there's that there's that <laughs> we had to listen to this on the campaign trail that with Bernie that they wanted a loyalty pledge from everyone right. that you must vote blue no matter who. And, right. <laughs> and there were things where like you were not allowed to speak at something if you did not essentially sign on to that mantra. Right, right. And, you know, this loyalty pledge was extracted from the very beginning um, from everyone. But the question seemed to be disproportionately asked of Bernie in debate contexts, in interview contexts. And he got follow up questions about it as though it was a gotcha question when his answer was always clearer from the beginning. But of course, he was going to support the Democratic nominee. Right. But what was interesting is that people who weren't asking the question, who weren't actually in an authority position to extract a loyalty loyalty pledge, right? Just regular reporters would ask this question. And there seemed to be a value judgment that if you were to raise any question about whether or not any of the candidates um, failed to reflect the values of the party, you were the one that was being disloyal to the party as opposed to the candidate who didn't reflect Democratic Party values. And namely... I'm thinking and talking about um, Michael Bloomberg. So we all remember that that really stunning moment where Elizabeth Warren kind of took him out of the race um, in, I think it was a January debate, where she says, you know, we have to stand up against a man who has talked about women in such terrible, vile, sexist terms, who has all of these accusations of, um, you know, gendered, uh, gender bias and misconduct in a professional context who supports stop and frisk and racist policies. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. And it was a, it was a, it was a stunning rebuke 
And Wilbur never recovered from that, right? But yeah. the very it's fact, a beautiful moment, yeah. right? The very fact that she could lay it out that way and describe Bloomberg in terms that and the average listener would presume were being applied to Donald Trump mm. suggests that the differences between those candidates weren't as stark as we would like to believe. And if there is even if there are even superficial ways in which the man could be compared to Donald Trump, it begs the question whether or not anybody should vote blue, no matter who, if Bloomberg were the eventual nominee, right? Right, exactly. Um, so I, re- I use that example in the article to ask people whether or not they have any personal litmus tests. You know, we often talk about Republicans negatively and criticize them um, by saying, well, they have no bottom. They vote for Trump. They vote for Trump if he shot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue, right? We use that specific example again and again and again to show that no matter what, Republicans are going to vote for Republicans. Republicans will vote for Donald Trump. But the ethical position of saying we're going to vote for Democrats no matter what never comes up. So I, I say that not to say we shouldn't vote for the Democrat in this instance, but to try to get at the bigger question of what happens over the long term when we have two sets of people locked into this pattern of just voting based on party uh, ideology, uh, party um, affiliation, as opposed to questioning what the what bars are they going to set internally as a, as members of a party and make any effort to drag their party one way or the other, and preferably, obviously, in the direction that the people are headed in, and that for both parties is to the left. So what I what I basically argue is this. The usual bind that we find ourselves in or that we're told we're in is that we have to make a choice between electability and doing the right thing, doing the more progressive thing. We're told that most Americans aren't progressive, that we're a center-right country, and therefore we have to make all kinds of compromises as Democrats every four years at the ballot box. Every four years, we're told that we're confronting the worst, most dangerous president in American history. And frankly, I don't even feel like disagreeing with that. The fact is, it's true. It's usually true. Yeah. So then we have to start asking ourselves, why is it that every four years, we're presented with the worst president in American history? Why do they keep getting incrementally worse? And does is that is that fact connected to the fact that we keep following the Republican Party to the right by nominating increasingly center-right candidates in an effort to attract what we think is going to appeal to swing voters. And in and the end result being that there's a growing and growing gap between what the kind of policies that average Americans want. You know, a majority of Americans support Medicare for all. 50% of Republicans support Medicare for all, not to mention 87% of Democrats. Right. 88% um, want to legalize marijuana. A majority of Americans support a wealth tax on the extremely wealthy and on and on and on down the list. Yet we don't get these things, not because people don't want them, not because there's too much um, division in this country, not because Americans are too right wing. But because we have two corporate parties that are weaponizing the perception of division and difference mm. to convince us that we need to um, sublimate our morals and values and the very principles that are supposed to define what it means to be as a Democrat in order to make sure a, a corporate friendly candidate gets elected every year. And this time, now that we've done all that hard work we talked about at the top of the episode, right? Bernie has been advocating all of these progressive 
heroes have been out here helping us to understand that healthcare is a human right, to get these poll numbers where they are, to get majorities of Americans understanding that they deserve better, that they that, that, that what they want can be, that a better world is possible. Um, now we're in a position where we can say to Joe Biden, if we so desire, we can say, hey, there is no trade-off between you doing the right thing that the people want and being an electable candidate. You were nominated because you were perceived to be electable. Great. You will only become more electable and better able to beat Trump if you stand for something other than just beating Trump and also stand to advance all of these overwhelmingly popular populist policies that will enormously benefit Americans, especially in the midst of an unprecedented health crisis and global economic crisis. In the NBC poll this week, uh, 58% of Americans gave as the number one reason why they're voting for Biden is because he's not Trump. Right. 58%. That was the main thing they could think of in terms of why they support Joe Biden, because they want to beat Trump because he's not Trump. And wow, that is how low we've set the bar. You know, that, that, um, you know, it'd be like if we started this podcast and you said to me, you know, I thank you for coming on. And you said, well, you know, I really didn't have anything else to do tonight. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I was going to wash my hair, but. (laughs) Yeah, wash my hair, talk to Michael Moore, wash my hair, talk to Michael Moore, talk to Michael Moore. You know, it's, it, uh, but it, it, it really, um, I fear in terms of us not being able to get rid of Trump, um, pause for effect, that um, because we don't have a candidate that people are positively excited about because of what he is going to fight for and do for us, that, that they're going in with this sort of negative thing and, and hate uh, of Trump. I get that. But, you know, I was always taught that love conquered hate and that love. And, you know, the people who love Trump, they really love Trump. Oh, oh, they love Trump. And that 63 million that he votes that he got in 16, they're all coming back. They're all coming back. I I saw a poll of Republican voters that showed something very similar that I think I believe 48 percent of Republican voters are going to vote for Trump because he's Republican. So he, both sides are right. doing it. Repu- yes. At the end of the day, I want Democrats who are listening to put themselves in the shoes of, of Republicans. I know that's hard and it's difficult to hear, but we have had our candidates and in, in, at times that haven't always behaved the way we would have wanted an ideal Democratic candidate to behave, right? Hillary. You know, I don't, right. I don't, <laughs> or, or even if you go back to, look, I personally, <laughs> I personally don't believe that, you know, you know, personal indiscretion is, you know, similar to the kind of betrayals of public trust. But in an ideal world, I wouldn't want to have to be in a world where I justify why my candidate has an affair with, you know, a 22 year old intern. I don't want to have to justify any of those things. But when those things happen, when those things happen, we all buckle down and said, okay, but what's more important? Supreme Court appointments, abortion rights, mm-hmm. voting yeah. rights, all, all of right. these kinds of things, right? And we don't agree with what Republicans value, but they're sitting on the other side saying, well, even if I disagree with who Trump is as a human being, I still value abortion rights or you know, small government or whatever it is that is driving their value system. Right. So in order to disentangle this, we have to start looking at the fact that there are there is a great deal of overlap here. And it really begs the question, 
if there are all these policies that are, are now enormously popular across the ideological spectrum, why aren't these major presidential candidates capitalizing on that and winning? If they care so much about beating Trump, why wouldn't you work to put together a coalition that is galvanized by the fact that you're able to support them at this moment of greatest national need? And to answer that question, you have to start to look at who it is that is funding these candidates. And when you have Joe Biden, who, uh, whose senior advisor, Steve Ricchetti, is a former healthcare lobbyist, and you look at the fact that he has taken more money from billionaires than any other you know, person in the primary contest, um, and you look at who's filling the fundraiser coffers, it's no wonder um, why it is that he's making the political decisions that he is and saying he's going to veto Medicare for all if, if it were to pass the House and Senate, even in the middle of a pandemic where almost 200,000 Americans have now died. Right. Or uh, uh, quietly remove the anti-fossil fuel uh, plank from the platform. Right. Or I thought I heard him say back when Bernie uh, dropped out uh, in the spring that he was going to get behind free college for all, at least free tuition at public colleges for all. Where's that? Yeah, I think that they're doing, if I recall correctly, unless they've backtracked on it, it was a free, he had capitulated on free public college. It was limited uh, a community college. It was limited in some in some ways, and there was no student debt cancellation beyond I think ten thousand from people who went to public school, public colleges. Yeah, um, but don't 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 quote me on that. No. no, I know it's. We shouldn't say. I'll I'll look it up and uh, get the, get the right language. But it's it's lame and it's yeah. um, weak. And your point is why be weak when the American public overwhelmingly. Uh, supports uh, uh, free or low-cost uh, child care, um, uh, universal health care, you know, all these things. What, they, they, can't even, they can't even come out for marijuana. They can't, the, the left party yes. can't come out. The liberal party can't come out for marijuana. There's like that, the whole public has changed their attitude about this in, in a very quick period of time. Yep. Why, why not say that? Well, you know, who stands to lose the most from the legalization of marijuana is the, the Marlboro man. Yeah. Right. right. It's like, it's, it's, it's no accident. Look, at one point I quote in this, I quote in this piece, um, Joe Biden himself kind of acknowledging the influence of money in politics. He said at a 2007 campaign event um, to uh, a reporter, he said, if you lend bundle $250,000 for me, all legal. And then you call me after I'm excited and say, Joe, I'd like to talk to you about something. You didn't buy me, but it's human nature. You helped me. I'm going to say, sure, Lynn, come on in. The front Mm. of the line is always filled with people whose pockets are filled. It's Mm. human nature. Mm. Wow. You know, and and that's not to say, Mm. that's not an outlier statement, right? Joe Biden is not uniquely evil in that respect. Just like when we were saying the same thing about Hillary Clinton in 2016, she wasn't uniquely craven for the Wall Street speeches. But the reality is, just because that's the way the game is played doesn't mean that it's the way the game should be played. And we should be really clear eyed about the consequences of doing politics that way. So your point though is, is that, okay, so yes, we've already made it clear. Trump's got to go. Biden is the only path we are ha- that's available to us now to remove him. But your point is, is that you can, you can walk and chew gum here and that you have to at yes. the same time that yes, you've got to vote on November 3rd or before preferably. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, Biden is our, 
path has been allowed to us. But, um, but we also, as Bernie said for a long time, and now, and now the uprising that has taken place, thank you, George Floyd, for your sacrifice to, um, you know, I was thinking about this the other night, maybe this is a crazy thing to say, but you know, I just, I, I said to Bales, I said, you know, I really, every, we should end every podcast honoring or thanking George Floyd and Breonna Taylor yeah. and, every, and everybody else um, who's given their, they've given their lives. They've given their lives in the same way that my uncle gave his life in World War II fighting fascism, that they gave their lives and, um, and we're going to be, I think the better off for it. But, and so I, I had this thought of, you know, would I be willing, would I be willing to, what if that were the case? If you could show me into a crystal ball and show me that, that I might, I might have to give my life, but the end result of that would be such an uprising that millions and millions of people would take to the streets, not only to the streets, but to the voting booth, to the, to the local uh, organizing committees, to Black Lives Matter, to whatever group. And, and out of this would come these very things that you and I are talking about on this episode. You know, who amongst us would be willing to say, well, I want to live. <laughs> I, I really don't want to die. Yeah. But- well, yeah, I mean, I wish it didn't have to take those kind of sacrifices. And unfortunately, you know, George Floyd didn't sign up for that. And he, you didn't know, he didn't get to decide. He didn't, he didn't have the choice. Right. That's right. But, right. I, but, but yet I never want, I want to say his name every day. I yeah. never want to forget. And I never want to forget uh, uh, Brianna uh, or, or any of the others, uh, Eric Garner. Uh, uh, Trayvon, any of them um, who had to give their lives without their own choice in the matter. Um, but that what came out of that was something where the American people decided enough is enough. And the promise of the American dream is going to finally be realized because we're sick of it. It is, it's only either been a dream or a nightmare. It's never been a reality. Yeah. And, and that's a little bit why it's so frustrating to see the Democratic Party platform and, and Joe Biden in particular be so kind of indifferent to the movement that's happening in the streets at the same time that he and the party celebrates the commitment of Black voters to electing Democrats. Um, there seems to be a real kind of gross dissonance there when George Floyd's family is included in the DNC and uh, in, in the first night of the convention. And yet Joe Biden persists in not wanting to, you know, do very basic things that he could do by executive order, like legalizing marijuana. I mean, I, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, marijuana being illegal is a but for cause of Breonna Taylor's death, right? It was a no knock warrant for marijuana sales. Um, and you can, was it really, was it marijuana? It was marijuana sales. Oh man. And, and, and so there's all of this, you know, oh. let's paint black lives matter on the street and, you know, bank of America proudly sponsors black lives matter and all of yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah. But the, 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 the party itself is unwilling to do really the bare minimum, even though it would only inert to his electoral benefit. Right. Again, this isn't a, he should do the right thing, even if it's going to cost him some votes. This is a moment where he could do the right thing and it would actually make him more likely yes. to beat Trump. When we talk about people like Joe Rogan, who I know is very controversial, his endorsement or pseudo endorsement of, of Bernie Sanders was very controversial. 
Um, when you when you look at the reasons why he said he supported Bernie, it wasn't that oh I think that Bernie is going to be, you know, bigoted or right wing in all of these ways. Of course not. He was someone who identifies as more conservative than most Democrats. He doesn't identify as a Democrat or Republican, but was drawn to Bernie because he believes in marijuana legalization, because he believes in Medicare for all, because he is a non-interventionist who wants to end endless wars. You know, he found aspects of Bernie's platform that were consistent with his own ideology. And I think that is how you get swing voters. Swing voters are people who I think are often looking for, uh, you know, political independence, a willingness to fight for the people, a willingness to bulk, bulk, uh, buck the establishment. And instead, the Democratic Party trots out John Kasich's, uh, people who are just kind of like milquetoast versions of one, one party or the other in an effort to, I don't know, uh, seduce, seduce people into, into this idea that, you know, there's a kinder, gentler version of the Republican Party and it's called the Democrats. I mean, at the same time, you're trying to push that message. You have Bernie Sanders and AOC saying something very different, that we're a party that should stand up for different kinds of belief structure. And it ends up in a very muddled and confused message. And you don't have to do that. There's a way that you can stand by values that are core to the party and also attract people who have been Republican for other reasons by simply genuinely offering to fight for them and what they believe in. Um, I, I don't know what, I don't know what to say about that um, as a, as a party. And I am not in a position where I am trying, I would ever want to tell people what to do with their vote. But why I wrote this article is because I can't help but observe that the frenetic panic over vote blue, no matter who, and the way that people you know, celebrities like Bradley Whitford and Debbie Deborah Messing are losing their minds anytime anyone suggests that they're less than happy with Joe Biden, right? There was a reporter I, I said in my piece who said that Joe Biden is, who wrote that Joe Biden is running a flawed campaign. And the fact that she just called it a flawed campaign, which who amongst us isn't flawed, right? Mm. Set off set off sirens and a whole, she turned it on Twitter and there's a whole media cycle about how she was going to reelect Trump basically for offering the mildest criticism of Joe Biden. And where does that leave us? So I think all of that panic is around the realization that huh. voters have more power in this moment than we've yeah. ever had. I think just the opposite. I think actually by being honest and, and saying things what people are already feeling, like there are these flaws in the campaign, but by acknowledging that, and then of course, and saying, well, we got to get rid of Trump and we got to get, you know, we got to go in there and vote for Biden. All that, you would think that that, that that's actually the smart way to increase the vote by being empathetic yes. with where so many millions of people are very nervous about, about Joe Biden and, uh, and, and rightly so. So that means that if you're nervous, then Now's the time, you know, you're saying, okay, I want to get on board because I want to help. I don't want these flaws to to hurt the country. Yes. That seems like a very patriotic position to take. I think frankly. that's right. And people, I think that Hillary Clinton's failure to kind of recognize that fact and reckon with the critiques and rehabilitate herself in the course of the primary season really hurt her in the general. Yeah. She seems, um, she came off as kind of um, unwilling to listen to criticism, uh, stonewalling, gaslighting. And it turned off voters who otherwise would have kind of done their duty and voted for her to keep Trump out of office, I think. Um, and now we're seeing these same mistakes repeated. Yeah, it but, really, it, I heard the tone was, it, I wanted to say to her, 
hey, you know, you won. <laughs> you, should, you put a let's like let's do a victory lap here. You know, before you start your your downer talk, uh, you know, take a little victory lap. You did beat Trump. That's that's a that's a statistical fact. Um, but instead, it was this this sort of and you know, and I get, I mean, you know, MSNBC now whenever they have me on, uh, for yeah. Basil, I don't, <laughs> I don't read any of this stuff on so on the comments stuff, but Basil tells me that Twitter goes crazy amongst Democrats yeah. or so-called, you know, moderate centrist Democrats. Why are you having him on? Why? Why are you wrecking the opening night of the convention for us? Why do you yeah. have your Michael Moore on? <laughs> you know, and it's like, wow, really? Because, you it know, yeah. we're all kind of on the same side here. I mean, I know you don't believe in the same things I believe in because I take it I take it to the logical place it should be like, you know, Obamacare. Yeah. Okay, good. Except 30 million people still don't have health coverage. Right. So if you're willing to settle and say, you know what? It's good enough. It's good enough. Most people got it. 30 million. Yeah. Okay. You know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not with you on that. So yeah, it, it what is that? I mean, I don't know what is, I mean, sure you get it too. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, MSNBC doesn't allow me on, so we need whoa, you. We need you in the fight true? there, Michael Moore. Well, I, I don't know. I, I certainly they weren't. Um, what does it say if they let me on and not you? That, I, that, that doesn't make me feel. That doesn't make me. <laughs> so the bar is low enough for me to I, come on. I won't speak for all all of the hosts. Um, I do know that there were sometimes um, book, booking pushback during the context of the campaign, and afterward, mm. there was one host in particular mm. that I. Um, I found out from a booker that wasn't affiliated with me or the campaign mm. uh, that suggested that I be booked on their show. And when they made the su suggestion, the host said back to them, actually, I won't be using your booker services anymore. Don't contact me. I will never have her on. Wow. <laughs> and, like, and blacklisted the booker just for suggesting my name. Oh, my God. I, I, do, I know a lot of the people there. They're actually, they're pretty good, especially some of the producers. Mm -hmm. And um, I, how about the next time they ask me on, I say, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Put me on, but you got to bring uh, a Brianna Joy Gray. I, I don't want you to get blacklisted, Michael. We need but you on there. Well, that's in, yeah, I know, but that's in, <laughs> I'm past the point of being blacklisted. I think I, I went to some kind of mountain, and <laughs> and now I'm in some some weird cloud that uh, that protects me from uh, from that. But uh, you know, I hate I hate to hear that. But I often wonder, like, why don't I, the people I read, whether it's people in current affairs, whether it's people in uh, uh, that, that other Brooklyn magazine or whether it's <laughs> the intercept um, or uh, you know, why don't we see more of them on any of the cable news? I, I don't understand. Uh, I mean, I think I do understand, but I don't understand because it would seem like the debate would be more exciting to have, not just yeah. the same old people agreeing with each other, show after show after show, but to have on some, you know, critical back and forth, respectful, but nonetheless, Let's let's air this all out. Uh, I hope we have that. Assuming Biden is the Biden is the president, yeah, I, that, I, I, uh, because these voices have to be heard. They seem to have some. I don't want to call them tokens because they're people that I like and respect, but they have, have to kind of tokenized the left on most of these shows, where they will have one tops per panel alongside Democrats who were formerly comms directors for Hillary Clinton or George W. Bush, um, often, or Barack Obama, 
untitled, their affiliation often goes unremarked upon, presented as neutral observers. And then we'll have, you know, Abdul um, Al-Sayed, who's often described as Bernie supporter as, as though he isn't a, wasn't a candidate and a doctor and a, and a professional in his own right, um, or a handful of other people. But you're right. I think a study, like a fair study showed that uh, MSNBC has, uh, their panels are skewed more toward Republicans than panels on Fox News. Wow, is that right? That, yeah, we talked about hmm. this in the media bias episode we did on um, "Hear the Burn." Mm. So, so it, it, it it's troubling, wow. and I think that's why you see a, the, a lot of success and excitement around shows like um, "Rising" with Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty, and Jetty because yeah. you know at least you have two people who are debating with each other over the issues, and you get to see the contours of an argument that folks who watch the mainstream news just aren't even aware of. I mean, I watched coverage. I was watching, um, you know the convention on CNN and just watching the coverage after it's news inducing just because there's a uniformity of opinion. And right. how long can you sit and listen to someone say, Oh, Democrats are great. They've never done anything wrong. They're perfect in every respect. Donald Trump is bad. He's bad. He's bad. He's bad. And the only thing that's wrong with the world is that Donald Trump is bad. In fact, there was a, um, a woman on, uh, uh, yesterday, I believe, um, who was in an exchange, Yvette Simpson, she was in an exchange with um, Rahm Emanuel. And she made the case that like, yeah, the convention was kind of boring because at a certain point you have to talk about policy and what the Democrats are offering affirmatively instead of just Trump is bad. And Rahm Emanuel cuts her off and is like, no, the point is that Trump is bad. People are going to vote for Biden because Trump is bad. We don't need to hear anything else. And it got a little contentious and it was interesting. And of course, Yvette is entirely right. But generally speaking, she, she, you know, that her perspective isn't there. And it's just Rahm Emanuel talking to David Axelrod about how bad Trump is. And there's nobody to offer any other color. You see, what's dangerous about this, about not allowing all voices to be heard, is that quietly uh, in the last few weeks, um, Trump has been gaining on Biden. CNN released a poll yesterday, CNN, and that poll said that they did a poll just of registered voters in the swing states. So that's really the only poll that ever really matters. Registered voters in the swing states. All right. Yeah. This is what it showed. 49% for Biden, 48% for Trump. That's this week. That's this week. Everybody who just heard me say that 49 Biden, 48 Trump in the swing state poll. If you just, if a lump just entered your throat, uh, good luck with the lump for the next few seconds because it should be a large lump because everybody needs to understand what is going, how could that happen? How could that happen? Yeah. It happens because as we, as we moderate ourselves, as we pull back, as we pull our punches, as we exclude our voices, um, it, it, people become less excited about getting out to vote That's for right. Biden. And, and and the other side, they've never lost their excitement. They've right. never lost their love. And um, they've just, they've just been, you know, biding their time and waiting for this moment. And I got to tell you, because now I'm old enough to quote the Dukakis uh, uh, Bush election, Bush one <laughs> and, and the Kerry election, all these elections, the week of the democratic convention, Kerry was ahead. Dukakis was ahead. And it didn't hold. 
it didn't hold because people don't like milk toast. They don't like, that would be, imagine, just imagine, just take that word. You toast your bread, mm, nice and crispy, and then put it in a cat's bowl of milk. <laughs> You're not a cat's bowl. Okay. Something that looked, not the actual cat's bowl. No, not that. I meant though the size of a cat's bowl. Okay. Used only by humans. <laughs> and now eat that toast. It's not, it's not pleasant. And, and, you know, the, Biden, Biden's got to listen to, you know, to, to the left part of this. I mean, somewhere I said this the other night, I was certain he'd swing right and pick Susan Rice. I was kind of shocked that he swung left, left toward, left toward uh, Kamala Harris. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, it's, he's, it's still yeah. frustrating that he didn't swing, you know, left of center to a Karen Bass type or to think creati- creatively about the pick in a way that really would have galvanized a lot of progressives and would have enabled him to capture some of the enthusiasm and the door knockers and volunteer, well, maybe not door knockers, but the volunteer efforts, the people making phone calls that set records for the Bernie campaign. See, I, I blame the Karen Bass thing. See, I blame that on people like me because when when the more conservative Democrats decided to do their oppo research and go after her because she went to Cuba. Right. Because she said something nice about Castro when he died. Yeah. Um, and just Obama blew that thing up. And, you know, I was so busy with so many other things and I'm in my own pandemic, you know, run around that um, I didn't do anything about it. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be, um, this is going to be the end of that. My brother-in-law actually uh, uh, taught economics at San Diego state and she was one of his students. Mm. And, uh, and, and of course he taught the, you know, let's just call it our kind of economics, <laughs> even though neither, neither of us are named Carl, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but he had, you know, told me these great things about her and I just thought, yeah, I should have been out there more to stop that, you know, because they, they killed her. Uh, that was the end. That was the end of that possibility. But, um, but Kamala Harris. Okay. So we know the, we know the old, the, uh, the old stuff with her prosecutor and all that, but, but her record in the U S Senate, you have to admit is, you know, as good as it gets for a, a Democrat and which, you know, has, has been pretty decent. I mean, do you agree with that or, or were you disappointed uh, from the people on the short list uh, that it was her? Well, there, there are a couple of things. One is that her record is obviously pretty short since she just became a Senator in 2017. And even given how short her record is, is there's a frustrating reality that she's already backtracked on backtracked on some of her biggest commitments, right? She was the first person to sign on to Bernie Sanders 2017 Medicare for First All. First person, and then she resigned again in 2019. But and yet, here we are. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, in the context of her own campaign, I truly believe she could be the Democratic nominee right now if she had shown a little backbone and not immediately capitulated on every stand she took in the course of the primary from her attack, rightful attack on Joe Biden over busing, which she started revising as soon as she got into the spin room. The moment she raised her hand saying that she wanted to eliminate private insurance and then backtrack the second she got into the spin room, the fact that she backtracked on her commitment to Medicare for all overall and started talking about this 10-year plan, which was just basically a gift to the private insurance industry to dig in their heels and fight it tooth and nail, um, basically pledging not to see it through and within the context of her own administration. You know, and then again and again and again. So at a certain point, and this goes back to what I was saying about swing voters and what I think ultimately a lot of voters who aren't that political are attracted to. You're looking for someone you can trust. 
And just because a poll shows you that you have a progressive voting record, often what those polls um, show you is how much you voted with your caucus as opposed to voted with Republicans. Mm. And so someone like Bernie Sanders, who will say, do a bipartisan deal with John McCain to get benefits for veterans, help benefits for veterans, that is perceived as voting against your party and showed as a less progressive record. But if you and a bunch of other corporate Democrats get together and vote to you know, deregulate the finance industry, then that's considered a progressive vote as long as everyone else in your party went along with it. So those polls don't show you much as, outside of, um, frankly, how in step with your party it, you are, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? It's, it's not uh, qualitative. And, and so here we are. Is she, the be- is she the worst choice imaginable? No. Is she the best choice imaginable? Far from it. I, what I do think that it opens up, though, is the fact that she has made all these commitments in the past. It's, it's a way, it's a, you know, her previous positions are leverage and arguments you can take, into, take to Joe Biden if you're a journalist and ask him to reconcile his partnership with her with his draconian beliefs about marijuana legalization, um, Medicare for all, and some of these other big ticket items. Even, you know, her, her, her debt cancellation plan was absurd, but at least it was some kind of debt cancellation plan. You know, she, she was the one that had that Byzantine, if you start a small business in a low income community and it yeah, operates no, for know. three years, you, you know, all of that nonsense. I did a, I did a, like a Shakespearean interpretive reading on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but but her heart's in the right place. So so we need to we need to encourage her to go back to say well, for instance. Look, I, I'm not in a position to comment on her heart, but what I have seen is a record that shows a certain degree of opportunism, right? So that's not necessarily a bad thing if we can create circumstances that make it opportunistic for her to do the right thing um, and put political pressure on in the right way. You know, and I, you know, I wrote about this years ago when she, or I guess over a year ago now that when she first announced that, you it know, feels a, like years ago, it feels like years ago, but my perspective as a lawyer on the kinds of people who go out, c- come from kind of fairly elite educational backgrounds and choose to be prosecutors is they do so for professional advancement, right? You don't earn any, very much money being a prosecutor, but you do it because you become very, corp- uh, very, very uh, appealing to corporate firms because you get litigation experience that you can't get at a firm um, because cases at firms very rarely go to trial Um, and, and, or you do it to launch a political career. And, you know, she started her political career out by running against an actual progressive prosecutor in um, San Francisco, using a tough on crime message where she handed out flyers that had, pictures of shirtless, tattooed Latino men throwing up gang signs saying enough is enough and bragging about her Mm. conviction record. This is who she is. And the fact that she has adopted a different stance now that, you know, the world has changed doesn't inspire me, you know, growth that seems organic is something that we should all laud, but there is nothing about her record that makes me confident that she has true deep ideological commitments one way or the other. Right. You're saying that, that she, you can't expect her to lead on these issues, but she will come along when she realizes that the wind has changed and the people are cha- changing and want a different thing and want her to go in a different way. Yeah. And this yeah. is, this is I think, the key point of the article as well. While Joe Biden is the only 
alternative to Donald Trump. The reality is that, that our vote should still be contingent on some kind of bare minimum and that Democrats shouldn't forego personal litmus tests. They shouldn't forego their values simply because they want to be Donald Trump. Their values are not inconsistent with beating Trump. They, in fact, help further that goal. Explain so, that because I think that's a really important point. Okay. So so if we were to say, so so right now, the way the way it's framed is if you don't vote for Biden, if you don't second up a vote for Biden, you've caused Donald Trump to win. That's blood on your hands. And the stakes genuinely are high. I want to be really clear about that. They are. Another way you could frame it is that because the things we're asking for will actually make Biden more electable, if we say our votes are contingent on Biden doing something like, let's say, supporting the legalization of marijuana, and Joe Biden chooses not to support marijuana legalization, something, again, he could do by executive order, then the onus is on Joe Biden if Donald Trump were to win, right? If, Don, if Joe Biden decides, I don't want your vote, I don't need your vote, as he said to countless people who've approached him during prim- the primary season about his stance on immigration and a number of other issues that Democrats in previous years have treated as real litmus tests, as real ideological lines in the sand. Suddenly, all that's out the window, even though it doesn't have to be for Biden to win. So if we frame it so that the onus is on Joe Biden for not doing the thing that overwhelming majorities of Americans want to do, then I think a really clear picture emerges about who our politicians are and who they're actually fighting for. Are they fighting for us or are they fighting for the special interests that are filling their coffers? Do you think, I mean, people listening to this right now, they're, I don't want to create more confusion with people, <laughs> but I am asking them to, to think and to, and to de- dig deep into their own conscience and their own soul, what they, what they believe in, what they want to fight for. The world the American world <laughs> that they want to see in two years or four years, what that's going to look like, how Biden and Harris are going to get us there. If they're going to get us there, you know, I know that people are saying I, I can, I can actually hear people be, before while I'm recording the podcast, I can hear them <laughs> listening to it. And they're like, Mike, Mike, Brianna, please, please. Okay. We know. Yes. Yes. I saw the flyers that she handed out in that prosecutor race. I live in San Francisco, but please, please get on board, get on board. And and what I say to them is, no, this is how I am on board. You want me on board this way. You want me, you want me to fight for these things now and after they're elected because yes, of course, I'd rather not play defense during another four years of Donald J. Trump. I would rather play offense against with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris playing offense for four years with them, pushing them millions of us in our groups, on the streets, at the polls, online, whatever it takes, millions of us saying, no, 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 no. You're not to put another person uh, in jail. You're to legalize marijuana. You are to, a living wage, yeah, $15 an hour. That's what we were talking about in 2016. That's not a living wage anymore. We need a living wage. We need these, we need all these things. And your corporate backers are just going to have to bite it because we're the people. And, right. and if I pull back from that, if you pull back from that, and if people listening to this can't understand that, that we don't want a hollow victory against Trump, we want one of substance. To where we are really going to create 
true change in this country. Yeah. And and there's a pragmatic there's a pragmatic argument here too, which is that yes, every 4 years we're told this is the worst candidate ever. And it is true, which means that in all likelihood 4 years from now we're going to be looking down the barrel of a Tom Cotton president uh, candidacy. And Tom Cotton is supportive of everything, every all of the worst things that Donald Trump has ever done but is also smarter and more ideological and more subtle about it. In a world where Tom Cotton were president and attempted the Muslim ban, it wouldn't have gotten overturned because he wouldn't have been so clumsy as Trump as to say, hey, I'm doing this because I'm discriminating against Muslims. And then it got, you know, that's the rationale for why it got struck down by the Supreme Court, right? Like it was open, yeah. open bias. Yeah. Tom Cotton would have been more subtle and it probably would have been upheld. Tom Cotton, Tom Cotton, you, people are upset. Oh, Trump is, Trump is tear gassing protesters in front of the White House. Tom Cotton's the one who wrote the op-ed saying that this is exactly what we should do, right? Okay. So and now so- that Tom Cotton, we have a rule on the show here. Anytime you say Tom Cotton's name five times, uh, <laughs> it, it's now time for a musical interlude. Way down <laughs> south in the land of Tom Cotton, old times there. <laughs> Sorry about that. Actually, 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 let me just, we just need to take a quick break here sure. and and uh, acknowledge our, our underwriters here Uh who support the show. And then we'll, we'll be right back on the other side of this with Brianna Joy Gray. So uh, today's uh, underwriter is NetSuite. I'm sure everybody's heard of NetSuite. They're the world's uh, number one uh, cloud business system. And so NetSuite, uh, which is uh, run by Oracle, they became over time the, the number one uh, cloud business system in the world. Uh, they've got like 20,000 plus companies uh, that use them, use NetSuite. And I want to encourage you to try them out. There's a free way to do this. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing where having something like NetSuite, you know, you can run your whole thing from your phone, basically, and you can work wherever you want to work. This This is one of these things that has helped us, especially during this pandemic, doesn't matter where you are, what your situation is, doesn't matter how small you are or big you are, whatever, having NetSuite available where you've got all your inventory, you've got all your e-commerce, your financial stuff, everything in one place. So here's what I'm asking you to do. You can get a free guide from them online. It's called Seven Actions That Businesses Need to Take Right Now. So you can schedule your own tour of NetSuite by Oracle by going to netsuite.com. Okay, NetSuite is spelled N-E-T. S-U-I-T-E, NetSuite, capital N-E-T, and then capital S-U-I-T-E, just like it sounds, netsuite.com slash rumble. You got to put the slash rumble in there. Anybody that wants to support me, you know, they're on the on this side of the angels. I hope you know that. Uh, and I would not uh, allow any underwriter that I, I didn't think uh, was doing something good for people and providing a service. And that's what they do. And I'm proud and honored to have them as an underwriter of this. So don't forget, get your free guide from them and, and schedule your free tour at netsuite.com slash rumble. All right. Don't forget the slash rumble, netsuite.com slash rumble. And, uh, and be sure and um, thank them for uh, supporting rumble with Michael Moore uh, so that my voice and your voice uh, can, can be heard. Okay. Now, um, sorry, sorry about the, uh, sorry about singing the, uh, Tom Cotton. Uh, uh, thing. I mean, could there be a better name for this guy than Cotton? There could not, there could not be. And let me tell you, he, there, it, it's, it's going to galvanize a certain sector of America that is going to be a problem for us when he runs. Yeah, so the question sadly, becomes, yes. 
how, what are you going to say to us then? You're going to say to us then what you're saying to us now, which is you have to hold your nose and vote for whatever centrist Democrat that doesn't reflect, I should don't want to call them centrist, whatever corporate Democrat that doesn't reflect the general popular desires of all Americans, but particularly Democrats, because Tom Cotton is in fact the worst president ever. And we're going to get worse and worse Democratic candidates and worse and worse, worse Republican candidates. And what happens to entire generations of Americans like my family in the Midwest, in Cleveland, Ohio, who for the entire history of their existence uh, from slavery through the civil rights movement to freedom has lived in a second, third tier of American society because we've been told, oh, just vote for the Democrats. Oh, just wait, your day will come. We have to you know, quell all of these exigent needs. At what point are basic human rights going to be extended to people who have been holding their nose and voting and have been the backbone of this party this entire time. I, mm. I resist the notion that there has to be this trade-off between electability and right. doing the right thing. And they got us by the, ne- yeah. <laughs> by the, by the sensitive bits. <laughs> yeah. No, we've got to not let that happen, though. I, really, I, di- I didn't realize your family was from Cleveland. Uh, oh, yeah, my mom's family. Okay, so I'm sorry to have claimed the Midwestern <laughs> card there earlier. I didn't mean to. And, and by the way, you know, Cleveland's motto is Cleveland. We're not Detroit. So <laughs> those of us in Detroit, Flint, we're very, we've been offended by this for a long time. Uh, that they somehow think they're better than us. But, uh, Look, I, I think that at, at this point, everyone's got to be each other's buddy in the struggle. That's and right. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no, um, there's no enemies among thieves. What's the, what's the expression? Uh, something about you're the the enemy of my enemy is my friend. No, no, that's not that's the wrong one. But but seriously though, go, go back to what you're saying here. That, that um, the 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 importance of not letting that 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 thing that forces us into some corner. Yeah. And um and then you know they're choking us with say it say it vote blue no matter who vote blue no matter who. Um, no, it's not actually that that easy. And, um, you know, a lot of people can make the argument um, that, well, if it can't, if it had come down between Bloomberg and Trump, you know, there I could prove how Bloomberg would be more dangerous in the sense that simply because he's smarter. Yes. And richer. He, he's and a richer. He's a, real, he's a real billionaire, multi-billionaire. That's right. Literally, ninth, they're uh, the ninth richest man yeah. in the world. And and yet, if you were to have opened your mouth and said that during the primary, the, the only time, truthfully, as Bernie Sanders, um, rep, camp, you know, uh, public representative, the only time that I ever felt like I had to not say truly what I felt personally in order to represent the campaign was when I was asked if I would personally su- vote for Bloomberg. <laughs> and you know having to dodge out of that question was uncomfortable because at a certain point that that was my personal litmus test there's no way in hell i'm not he's republican he's literally a republican i'm not voting for him he 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 terrorized black and brown people in new york city i've been a new york resident since 2001 right my i i have been walking down the street with my brother when he's been pulled over by the cops i'm not for, for for existing you know a a 98 pounds yeah. soaking wet with glasses teenagers. I'm not doing this. You know what right. I mean? And that's right. we enable you have the, to the put idea of down. a Bloomberg. Yeah, we we right. enable him to advance in politics when we don't call out how unconscionable, how the fact that we will not go there. And he is able to get, he was able to get dozens of mayors, black mayors in particular, to, to, to back up his campaign and legitimize his, camp, his run 
because he had the money to have the special mayor school and have everybody circulate through and donate to everybody's campaigns. And he'd been laying this foundation for over a decade. Yeah. And you know, all of us, you know, <laughs> not saying anything about it, saying that we would vote for yeah. him under any circumstances enabled him to get as far as he did. And That's frankly, right. come very close to throwing a wrench in um, Bernie Sanders plans, uh, Bernie Sanders candidacy. Right. You know, if, if Bloomberg was mayor right now, take Trump out, put Bloomberg in. See, mm-hmm. Trump, because Trump is is has some serious issues and um and because he's he is he's both an idiot and a genius at the at the same time which makes the genius part more dangerous but um you know he doesn't know how to pull off his october let me just tell everybody what the october surprise Mm -hmm. is you know he wants a war with iran and uh in the the israeli uh, united arab emirates agreement this past uh, week i'm certain is Part of that, because you know they they both want they've been wanting this to go after Iran as has Saudi Arabia, so so you know Trump I think has been trying to put together his coalition with the help of Jared uh, to to do take some kind of action against Iran before the election, but he's too stupid and clunky really to know how to pull that off. Whereas Michael right. Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, in the same shoes in the same moment would know exactly how to do it and would do it. Um, and so you can't say to me, yeah, but he's a Democrat, so he's not as bad. Really? Well, right. it doesn't work like that anymore. And, you know, I think people, especially of your generation, Brianna, that, that you just can't tell young people this kind of bullshit. Yeah. You know, because they see it as complete bullshit and, yeah. and won't participate in it. And it's, it's, you know, looking the other night there at the statistics in the polls, Biden is behind Trump in the over 65 vote. Okay, Trump wins mm. that. Thirty-five to sixty-four, he was only ahead of Trump. Biden was only ahead of Trump by it was kind of like um, forty-eight, forty-six, or forty-seven, forty-four. It was just two or three points is all it was that he was ahead of Trump in the thirty-five to sixty-four. Only when you go to under thirty-five does Biden show in the polls a huge margin yeah. uh, over Trump. You would think with so much support from younger adults that um, that what he would be um, speaking about right now would be those things that would make sure that they get out and vote. But I don't, I don't see that. And I don't hear it. And it's really, it's really what worries me and worries me about that CNN poll I quoted earlier that, mm-hmm. um, or the fact that Michigan this week, Trump closed the gap. He's only four points behind in Michigan. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And then you watch the convention. And I, the first night I was waiting and I tweeted, you know, did I miss any mention of policy? Did I miss it? Did anyone say a single thing about policy? And it went on until Bernie Sanders remarks, which were the second to last remarks in what, two hours of convention was the first time that anyone said anything other than an empty platitude. Anyone said, you know, Bernie said a $15 minimum wage, um, you know, free childcare, you know, named actual policy positions that someone might be inclined to go to the polls to get, right? Every other person who spoke, and it was even worse the second night because there was no Bernie, just said things like, we got to be together. We got to make people have more access to healthcare. Joe Biden spoke 
and, you know, at great length about his own personal tragedy and how important it is to have health care because he's experienced loss, but said absolutely nothing specific about how the rest of us who, yes, have also experienced a great deal of tragedy in our lives and personal loss, but have not been able to afford health care, we're going to be able to get through it, especially in the context of this pandemic. And there's something just really, I think, obscene about hoping people don't look or listen close enough to ask questions and see the extent to which they're being sold. Yes, a milquetoast status quo, a complete lack of improvement over the dystopia that we live in. And frankly, that a lot of people lived in even under Obama. And until Democrats are are, are willing to recognize that, are willing to recognize that premiums have gone up 26% since Obamacare. Obamacare is a wonderful intervention that has made it so that 20 20 million more people have insurance than did before. This is not a a round criticism. But the reality is that these programs are not perfect. And there are a lot of folks who went and voted for Trump. Yes, racism colors it, but not just because they hated Barack Obama because he's black, but because they cannot afford their premiums. We have American families paying $20,000 a year for for healthcare, and they still have to pay a bill when they go to the doctor's office. You know, these are real problems. And a lot of people would sit up and pay attention if Democrats would give voice to them, but they won't. And it opens up a door for Donald Trump to get on TV at their convention and say, healthcare premiums are high and I'm going to fix it. And he said it in 2016 and people believed it. And maybe more, you know, fewer people will believe it this time around because, you know, he has a demonstrated failure to follow through on those promises. But in the absence of an alternative, coming from the guy who was in office when some of these problems emerged. I, you know, it's, it's, it's a toss up. It shouldn't be a toss up. Right. No, I know. And this is what worries me that, that trying to tone it down is, is going to cost us on election day or in the days or weeks leading up to it, that it just, people have got to feel the way that people felt that morning that Obama was elected. People couldn't wait to get to the polls. You know, after eight years of George W. Bush, oh my God, people were like, and they weren't just going there because they weren't voting for Obama because he wasn't George W. Bush. I mean, there there was a a, a sense of feeling some sort of connection, no matter how simple it might have been. There was there was that, and and now I, I just I wish I could get through to somebody and have them understand that that this approach, the approach that Goldman Sachs wants you to take. The approach that the the coalition of health insurance companies want you to take, um, the promise of love from Wall Street, uh, this is what's actually could cost you the election. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want anybody waking up on November fourth, going, God, what's that? What was that podcast we were listening to back in August? <laughs> Those two crazy people were talking about this could happen. You know, I, I don't want to be that person again to, to again have to warn people that if you're trying to play it safe, if you're trying to talk sort of re- Republican ish, um, if you bring a war criminal like Colin Powell out onto yeah. the stage, wow. Uh, um, you know, I, I, uh, I thought about if anybody in Iraq is watching this right now, just any average family has got a TV set and is watching Colin Powell who lied, lied to the world about what yeah. the Iraqis were up to and cost them God knows how many hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, I mean, Brianna, I don't know. This is why 
I wanted to talk to you. I wanted you to come on the episode here today. And I didn't tell you why in advance. I wanted to just kind of, well, I was hoping I'd feel better, frankly, by the time we were going to mm-hmm. record. And I wouldn't have to begin by saying I was depressed, but, but I am depressed. And yeah. I, I'm afraid now after we're in the third, as we're recording this, the third night of the convention and, and it's beginning to look like um, the parts of uh, the movie Starship Troopers, where mm-hmm. they have all that kind of Orwellian video <laughs> and that footage where you too can sign up. You yeah. know, Joe Biden is a decent man, you know, and yes, yes, he I, I've met him a few times. He is decent. Yes. But God damn it. We have so many things we need to be fighting for and fixing in this country. We need to come out of this pandemic a better people. And, and decency isn't going to get it. Let's just all assume he's decent. Yeah. Can we please spend the last tomorrow night, the last night of the convention, can we at least talk about how we're getting there and why we're fighting for these things? What are the things we're actually fighting for? Why is this not being discussed? Why, why is it just, you know, uh, we're, you know, we're going to see Obama and he's going to say some cool things because he's a cool dude. But yeah. it's it's like, oh man, please somebody, Brianna. Uh, <laughs> it's not like I've called my own my one lifeline here. But, <laughs> but I, I, I really listen. I'm not alone. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people listening to this podcast right now, and yeah. they they want. I'm sorry to put this on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm incapable of it right now. So uh, you 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 need to wire this thing together so that so that we remain true to these things that we desperately believe in, but also um, how we then help move this ball down the field and get rid of Trump and get Biden and Harris in there. And then we have to be right there pushing, 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 uh, or we won't get anything done. Um, I'm just going to, you know, we're getting near the end here and I just, I'm going to turn this over to you to, to, uh, to lead us. I need you to lead us. Uh, I'm sorry. I know, uh, but you know, um, you, you, you've, you've, uh, you've done so well. I've listened to you, your podcast. I've read your writings. Uh, you are really, in my humble opinion, one of our great thinkers. Oh, gosh. And no, <laughs> and I mean that. And I, I, um, you're a gift, you're a gift, uh, to the people of this country and your voice, uh, needs to be heard and amplified. And, and now I have put you on the spot, but, <laughs> but, but we need to leave a few hundred thousand people here at the end of this with not some kind of false hope, not a unicorn, um, not pie in the sky, mm-hmm. but, but, but see you and I, I think we believe that there can be victory, but it's how you define that victory and how we get there and what we do with it after we have it. And, um, and now the floor is yours. Well, I first, I mean, thank you, but I, I do want to say that I, I don't want to pretend to be, in a leadership position or you know, kind of usurp unearned authority. I'm myself pretty new to all of these movements and, in, and to, to politics. But what I think that I do have is in some ways an outsider, somewhat normie perspective. I am someone who is an analytical thinker who went to law school because she liked to argue and, and parse why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do. Um, and it seems to me what we need is a sort of uh, intervention. When I talk about voting and leverage and um, whether or not we should ensure that our votes are not freely given but conditioned on some very basic principles, um, 
uh, that we should decide who we are as a party and what it means to be a Democrat and what you're willing to vote for and what you're willing to not vote for, what you're willing to pull Democrats back from the brink of, even if there is some risk of short-term failure. You know, these are difficult, heady questions, and I don't know the answer to them. I don't know what people's risk tolerances are, and I'm not in a position to tell people what to do. But the same way an intervention um, is a kind of um, dramatic act of you know, almost violence that you do against, you do to someone you love to try to get them on the straight and narrow and really see that they're heading in the wrong direction. It feels to me like being honest about our critiques of Joe Biden and even saying that our vote should be contingent on him doing the bare minimum, you know, in the context of the largest protest movement in American history, that at very least he should commit to legalizing marijuana, that he should take seriously the request from the Black Lives Matter movement, which include canceling all student debt, which include a $30 minimum wage, which include, um, you know, uh, Medicare for all, uh, that he should have to make some concessions to the majority of the party and the majority of the country that he plans to represent. You know, I think that that is ultimately going to inert to the benefit of his campaign and contribute to his ability to beat Donald Trump. And by letting him do what he's doing now, he is squandering a lead. He's squandering um, disappointment with Trump that has led many people to defect already. And I don't think that we're doing him any favors. And we're certainly not doing ourselves and our communities any long-term favors by saying that this is the best we can do and this is the best we can expect. I don't think we should apply a kind of soft bigotry of low expectations to Joe Biden. I think he can be a better candidate than he is. And I think personally, it's worth considering our role in helping him to be that. He can be better, right? He has to be better. He has to be better. And our role, as you said, our role in that is what? I mean, it's well, obviously you and I are speaking publicly about it right now. Um, you know, maybe one of his grandkids is listening to this. <laughs> um, but um, for the other people that are listening, what can we, we, we the people, we this movement, what can we do to not wait till January 20th, but to insist right now to have him to appeal to his, whatever that is on his better side to go further than that. You know, I've never personally gotten one of those calls that, you know, were polling calls, but I think the reality is regardless of what you plan to do at the voting booth, you know, I think it's incumbent on us to make our discontent known now. If Biden keeps seeing polls that say everyone's going to vote for him, that overwhelming majorities of Democrats and overwhelming majorities of um, Bernie supporters and overwhelming majorities of the supporters of all the other candidates are going to vote for him, regardless of what he does, that the number one issue is beating Trump, that they don't care about these other material concerns, even in the midst of this crisis then he really doesn't have any incentive. And I think the protest movement in the streets, I understand that obviously COVID is out there and a lot of people can't protest and are, are at risk. And I respect that enormously. But, you know, people, people in the streets puts pressure, um, especially if their message is really specific and tied to policy asks that are, doable, that can't be dismissed, that can't be dismissed as pie in the sky or like a pony. 
So I think we have to keep that pressure up. And there are, there are elected representatives like Rashida Tlaib who has said, I don't sign on to the Democratic Party platform because it is disrespectful to what our communities need right now to thumb your nose at taking care of health care, to thumb your nose at rent relief, uh, to thumb your nose at, uh, as people are being literally cast out into the streets with their belongings, with no shelter from a disease that could kill them. Right. You know, and, I think we got to talk in those terms. We, yes. we, we can't shy away from it. And he can fix that right now. Forget about the platform, the convention, whatever, next week, whatever. He can say, you know what? Yeah, we forgot about rent relief. We forgot about these things. We have to do it. I'm going to do it. He, there's nothing that prevents him from saying anything. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and even the $2,000. I mean, I, I remember at one point, um, one of the people uh, who spoke at the convention was talking about uh, uh, $2,000 monthly payments. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, has Joe Biden committed to that? Because he was asked by um, Jeff Stein of the Washington Post a month or so ago, and the campaign issued a non-committal written response. So there, there's this real misrepresentation that's happening right now, where everyone is kind of assuming that Joe Biden supports things that Kamala Harris and some of the more progressive people, members of Congress, Bernie Sanders, have been supporting during this whole COVID process, when he actually hasn't made those commitments. So journalists who are listening, people who are able to call the representatives, I think we really have to get him to commit on paper now to things and not just assume that we can push him some kind of way once he's in office. Once he's now, in office, there yeah, is now. no leverage. There's right, none. Right. Now. It has to be now. And, to be I, now. and again, for you know the people that are wondering why we're doing this episode, it's because we have no doubt about ourselves, the people we know, everybody's going to vote. Everybody's voting. Everybody's voting for Biden. Don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. It's that I need the people that are listening to this for us. To, if, if my goal is to remove Trump, um, you can't just vote. You got to bring five, 10 people with you. And if the, if the electorate is depressed because they are more worried about how they're going to pay the rent this month and they hear no, nothing from the candidate about that, they're not going to not vote for him. They're going to vote for him, but they're not going to be as um, they're not, they've got, they've got to deal with their lives and they're not going to go and get 10 other people to go vote on election day. Right. And if that doesn't happen, I'll repeat the CNN poll again from Monday, battleground States registered voters. The poll was 49% for Biden, 48% for Trump. That's, that's the reality. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you that I know that from Michigan and I know that do not take any of this for granted. Mm. But, but we, it's not just about, hey, let's just go get people to vote. They're not just going <laughs> to knock on somebody's door and get them to vote. You got to, they've got to have a reason to get out there. Right. And I want to remind people of this statistic that I gave you when I started this podcast in the 2016 election in Michigan, it was cold on election day. People stood in line three, four, five hours in the cities of Detroit, of Flint, of Pontiac, of Benton Harbor, Grand Rapids, Saginaw, Lansing. 90,000, 89,000 Michigan voters stood in line for all that time just so that they could go in and they voted for everybody down ballot on the ballot, Congress, State Senate, Drain Commissioner, and they left the top box blank for president. Mm. And most of these were Democratic ballots. They stood it. They wanted, they wanted to go and sacrifice half their day just so they could send 
a message to the Democratic Party. Mm. We are not going to vote for a candidate that's not for us. And you can have all your pundits talking all you want and all they want about how Bill Clinton was the first black president, how black people love the Clintons, just like we've had to listen to this about Joe Biden. You can say that all you want. But that election in 16 came down to black Americans who have suffered in Flint, who have suffered in Milwaukee, who have suffered in Philadelphia, and and were unable to rise above that. And if they went to vote, they went to vote to send a message by leaving that box blank. But I'll tell you, I know in Flint alone, there were 8,000 African-Americans who voted twice in the Obama elections and did not go out in right. the election of 16. And that's not because they didn't care. Right. But you can only beat a pe people down so far. In uh, at the stat that I love from an article by Maleka Jabali in Current Affairs a couple years ago was that in, there were 88,000 black voters in Wisconsin who voted in 2016, uh, 2012 and didn't vote in 2016. And when polled and asked why, uh, voter suppression was less than you know 4% of the response. The bulk of the answers were a lot about being disaffected, my vote doesn't matter, um, it's not going to change anything, those kinds of answers, right? Um, this could so, happen again. Yeah. Maybe not on the same scales as, as Hillary, but but it could definitely happen again. And now is the time for Joe Biden to to take this by the reins and not let that happen and say what he's going to do and promise to act on it. Uh, no platitudes, no hollowness. The, the real deal, you, people hear that, they're going to come out and vote. But if you think that you're trying to placate Republicans and you're trying to convince Trump voters to come out and vote for you, that that is the plan. That's what it looked like during the convention. That's right. the plan. That's the wrong plan. They, first of all, the, the, the Republicans who hate Trump, they're either going to stay home or if they do, yes, of course, they're going to come out and vote, vote for Biden. You've already got their votes, just like you've got our votes. So if that's the case, why don't you just do the right thing? Right. Now, now, why not guarantee your victory? By, by doing the right thing and telling people the disaffected and the disillusioned, the beaten down, that not just that you're there for them, but this is specifically what you're going to do for them. Oh, man, I can hear, I can hear the confetti and the balloons dropping on <laughs> the night of November 3rd right now if they would just listen to this. Yeah. Oh, Brianna. But remember, I want to be clear. It's, yeah. it's not about... Be, whether Biden is a good guy and he pays attention and Barack Obama is a good guy and everyone's a good guy. It's that's irrelevant. What matters is that it Joe is Biden's relevant. senior advisor is a healthcare lobbyist. What matters is right. that there's so many, there's so much more corporate money pouring into this campaign. So when we ask about tangible things we can do, perhaps more than any policy commitment would be to demand that Joe Biden extricate himself from all of this corporate influence and make promises and commitments about not filling his cabinet with people who have just spun out of the revolving door. Did you hear that, Joe? <laughs> I second what Brianna just said. <laughs> that would do more to guarantee people wanting to vote for you. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's not naive, right? People, you know, people don't understand what they're paid not to understand. Right. How are we leaving this? <laughs> Look, I, I'm, I'm still in an optimistic place, and you might call me naive or delusional, but to me, the game isn't over yet because we're three months 
two and a half months before the election and the general election has just started. And our opportunity to, as voters to shape this race is still very much in play. Now, the moment after the election, if Joe Biden wins and the kind of neoliberal uh, corporate wing of the Democratic Party is validated in their belief that the way to stay in power is to do the bare minimum for the people they represent, like, that is going to be a dark day for me. Um, you know, I think, obviously, it'd be lovely to have Donald Trump out of office. But at the end of the day, our goals are so much bigger than that. So, you know, this is the moment where we still have power. And I think that that's, that's what the vote blue, no matter who people really don't want us to realize. And I know it's risky. And again, I'm not telling anybody what to do. And I'm certainly not telling anybody in Michigan what to do. Um, but, you know, as a New Yorker, um, you know, I, I think a lot about the value of my vote and the value of casting my vote to run up vote totals um, and the power of my own leverage. And it seems to me the most leverage you can have is to say, Joe Biden, my vote is gettable. I want you to earn my vote. I want to cast a vote for you. I don't want you to put yourself in a position to be better, to be worse off against Trump. I don't want to hurt you. Here's how I think I'm helping you by asking you to move to a position that's more aligned with the majority of voters so that you can both help us survive this crisis and also be better positioned to beat Donald Trump and draw stronger contrast as this general election gets kicked off. Well, I think that ask is a reasonable request of Joe Biden and, um, and it's, and it's doable and, and it won't, not only won't cost him anything in terms of it will only gain him the victory um, and of his victory, but, and also the, the uh, crash and burn of Donald J. Trump. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Brianna, uh, for this time. Um, um, do I feel a little bit better? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do actually, because I've, I've had a number of thoughts during this discussion of what I could be doing and what I maybe will be doing in the, in the coming weeks. So, uh, we'll just stay tuned for that. Um, after I've had a night to sleep on this, but thank you very much. Of course. Uh, and, thank and, you for, for bl blessing me with the title of the first return uh, guest. The first, the first <laughs> return guest on Rumble, uh, a Rumble repeat. So now <laughs> you've set the record and uh, others will have to uh, try to uh, at least match it. But uh, no, and to anybody who's been on the show, by the way, who just heard me say that, I've loved all of you. You've all been great. Mm -hmm. And I do want you all to come back on. But, uh, but I, 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 uh, I needed help out of the funk that this convention has kind of put me in. Didn't start out that way. I love that first hour on the first night. It was very, all the real normal people. Mm, uh, yeah. It was very sweet and good. Uh, and then it, and then by the second night it was in, we were into Starship, Starship Troopers. So <laughs> but, uh, anyways, thank you everybody um, who um, has been listening to this. Uh, don't forget, you can write to me at Mike at michaelmore.com. Uh, you can leave me a voice, uh, a message on, uh, the, uh, my voicemail, which is right here on this podcast site. You just click on the link and it will dial me up and you got a minute to leave. I can't, I can't call everybody back, but please, uh, leave me a voice uh, message. I'd, I'd love that. I love, I listen to every one of them. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, Basil, we've got, we're going to, we're going to hit number 15 million of our listeners, number of listeners downloads, uh, uh, probably sometime around this weekend, 
or right after it. So um, we've got to have a, what's our prize? We're going to, we'll have another virtual drawing um, of our, of our 15 millionth listener. Um, what, what, uh, what, what, what do we have in the bag uh, for them? Uh, the, for five, number five, five million and 10 million got to be a guest on the show. It was really cool talking to mm. them. So maybe, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do that again. But anyways, I want to thank, by the way, Basil Hamden, our executive producer, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, to everybody else who's been uh, supportive of, of uh, this podcast. Please share it with your family and y- your friends. And once again, thank you uh, to Brianna Joy Gray for um, uh, being part of this episode here during uh, Convention Week. Uh, Brianna, thank you. Please keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Right, right back at you times a thousand. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This has been Rumble with Michael Moore.